Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Uh, excuse me, I'll be right back. So, you heard me say I was leaving, and I said I'd be right back. Uh, you didn't know where I was going or how long I was going to be gone, but for less than a minute here, you actually experienced expectant waiting, right? Yeah. And, and how did you feel during that time? Like when all of a sudden I'm gone and everybody's looking, what did, what did you feel? A little nervous? <laughs> he lost it. He finally snapped. Uh, here's, here's something you knew I'd be back. That's sweet. That's so wonderful. So, so here's what's cool. You were all still sitting here. That's a good thing. Like nobody got up and left and said, well, that's it. Uh, you stayed here cause you knew what we were going to do. Maybe if you're a, you know, a person who brings your Bible and follows along, maybe you actually looked and saw what the text was and moved in your Bible and got ready to, to get into this. Cause I said I was going to be back. And, and you knew I'd be back, right? And, and we knew we'd, we'd, we'd do this all together. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That's kind of setting up the theme a little bit of this idea of expectant waiting. That's what we're going to be looking at in our text today. Um, as we continue in our exploration of the Gospel of Luke. So uh, if you haven't done it already, if you'll turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Luke chapter 12. This is our third week of looking at this chapter. Jesus began with a warning about hypocrisy, telling us to be careful about about how it is that we pursue our spirituality, to be cautious and careful uh, uh, about the the place of human approval in our hearts and our lives. And from there, he warned about allowing greed to begin affecting our values and how it is that we carry ourselves through this world. And um, then, he talked, then he encouraged us to put our trust in God, which he saw as, a, as an antidote to both hypocrisy and greed, if our trust and, and hope is in God alone. Now today, Jesus is going to challenge us, us to be watchful, we presume, for his return. And here's the thing, the, the, you know, the second coming of Jesus is often a, a loaded topic for the church when we get to this. There are a myriad of ways in which people understand it, but historically the church has held to the promise made by Jesus that he is going to return to this earth one day and set all things right. That's a historic concept that the church has embraced from its beginning. The thing about this subject is that we're often prone to get our response to this subject backwards. 
What I mean is the topic of the second coming and often associated with maybe the end of the world is sensational. And it can quickly inspire uh, excitement or fear or, or both. And it has often been used. This subject has often been used for the purpose of either hyping people into coming to church or scaring people into a confession of faith. And both of those, I believe, are inappropriate ways in which we would use Scripture uh, in, our, in our lives. I am not convinced that that's the intended purpose of the subject of Christ's return or, or the end of the age. All good stories, here's what we keep in mind, all good stories have a conclusion, a goal to which the characters are aspiring to, a destination that compels a journey. That's what all good stories are composed of. I believe that God's story of the ages is no different. And I believe the scriptures declare that there is an intended conclusion to this story of earth. And I believe that the destination of that conclusion can compel our journey. But I also believe the predominant focus of scripture is on the journey itself. Not so much getting us speculating about the end of this thing. And I, and I think that's going to play out in our text today. So here's the, the, the real thing is no matter how a person understands what the scripture says about the end, we are all facing an end. You know, whether a person has a, has a different set of theological perspectives or doctrinal views about eschatology, the bottom line is we are all facing an end. I mean, you know the saying, life is terminal. We're all facing an end. So whether it is the, the end that is the second coming or the end of the world, or if it's the end of our journey of life, we are challenged either way to be prepared. The contrast that Jesus was making in the last section were between, between what's temporal and what is eternal. And the proper value set is placed on what is eternal. And so Jesus expounds on that in our text today, looking towards that. And if you're there in Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 35. Jesus says, Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I'll tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put them on, put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he'll reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If the homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming, he wouldn't permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Okay, as I said before, the, the, the future return of Christ remains a focal point for the Christian church. It's, it's central in the hope of the New Testament. And the consistent message is that since we look forward to the day when Christ will come and set things right, it ought to make a difference in the way we live right now. And that's really the, the center of the focus, how it is that we're living right now. And here's the thing. Jesus told this story, and, and this is what we've got to remember and keep in context here. Jesus told this story while he was still there with them. And, and he had never given any indication that he wasn't going to be there with them at some point. 
So we have to think about how did they interpret this story? How did they understand what he was was saying here? Some have suggested that this isn't the final return that he's alluding to, but rather his first advent, the, the, the fact that the master, Messiah, is right there in the midst of God's people, has shown up and caught them unaware, and they don't recognize him, is what he's getting at. And I find that compelling, especially, especially contextually. But I'm also persuaded to think that this is about both. It, it had a first application to Israel and their failure to recognize Messiah when he was there. It carries over and becomes a focal point for the church, uh, you know, uh, the, the, becoming our hope for the return of Christ and, and his setting of all things right. The emphasis in the New Testament is certainly there. We're, we're told over and over to be ready uh, for that day. But what that means is that while we you know, anticipate his return, the emphasis to be ready, the emphasis is on how we live today. In this first parable, Jesus pictures the, uh, the wealthy head of a household. So think uh, Downton Abbey in, in something like this. Uh, so the wealthy the household owner has gone off to a wedding somewhere. And, you know, even if it's a local celebration in, in that time and, and age, uh, you know, in first century Israel, weddings were known, wedding feasts were known to last up to a week. Imagine saying, you know, to your boss, I'm going to a wedding, and him saying, okay, so you'll be back two weeks from now. And, you know, yeah, okay. Uh, it was kind of, uh, uh, it was cool. But either way, the, the, but there was no way to know for sure when Mr. Crawley's going to come home. You know, everybody was you know, just, and when Jesus tells these servants to be ready, and that they want to be found waiting when the master returns. We don't want to understand that like they're sitting around watching the gate, waiting expectantly for it to open up, and he's there. Obviously, these servants have tasks that need to be performed, daily work that they have to do, and so their waiting, their readiness, involves being dressed for service and having the lamps burning, doing the stuff that they're called to do, doing the normal things that were expected of them, to to tend the garden, to take care of the livestock, to uh, do any maintenance that the estate may need. Just the normal stuff that they were supposed to be doing is what they were supposed to be doing in preparation or in anticipation of the master's return. In other words, ready and waiting means doing what they've been instructed to do as if the master were still with them. The second parable uses the same motif of a surprise entry, only this time he uses the idea of a burglar. Which again, it's a parable, so we're not making one-to-one comparisons in this. We're not trying to say Jesus is like a burglar. It's just, you know, it's just pointing out that burglars, at least ones who are good at their profession, never send out flyers in advance saying, I will be here at such and such a day, please be prepared. They don't announce when they're going to show up. And so both of these stories give the same exhortation, and that is that the time of the end is unknown, living faithfully is how we prepare for it. The time of the end, either our end or the end of the world or whatever, that is unknown to us. And so to live in a prepared state means we're just going to live faithful to what it is that we've been instructed to do all all along. It's weird to me that some will read these parables and think Jesus says to be ready and they'll take that to mean that they need to examine all the present day events that are going on and looking for clues for when Jesus is going to show up. Uh, that's kind of a strange way to interpret this. And we've had people 
We've had people predicting Jesus' return, I mean, all through the ages. So much so that it's lost all sense of humor for me. It's not even funny anymore. In my lifetime, and I went back and I took the time to count it up. In my life, I'm 60 years old. In my lifetime, there have been 20 high-profile failed predictions of the time of Christ's return. And when I say high-profile predictions, I mean predictions that gained traction, that gained a sizable following of people who believed it, embraced this as truth, and, and you know, <laughs> sold their houses or whatever in anticipation of this. And listen, scouring through current events to chart how the end times are going to develop and identify all who all the major bad guys are, that's... That's almost a cottage industry for, for some groups that are there. And I've seen these, these predictions and these mindsets and these books about these things come and go my entire life. Uh, you know, my dad was a preacher. I pretty much grew up in the church. Doesn't mean that I was a believer all that time. I didn't become a believer till I was in my twenties, but, but my whole life I have seen these books around everywhere. Of, of these predictions about what's going to happen. When I was a little kid, it was always the Soviet threat. And then the Soviet threat's gone, and we find these different threats, and we go through these things, and we build these end-time scenarios. And I have yet to find anybody write a book saying, whoops, that was wrong. You know, I'd love to, I'd read that book. I'd pay for that book. But I haven't seen it yet. It, like I said, this is like a cottage. It's, it's sensational. It's exciting. That's not the gospel. Do you know that there's actually, and I'm not kidding, it's not funny, it is. Uh, there's actually a rapture index online, and it works like the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It charts the various activities happening in the world and assigns a numerical value to it to determine how close we are to Jesus' return on this thing. So if you're curious, you can go do that. But don't do that, because that's a terrible idea. All of this energy expended which often takes very dark turns when someone is identified as a sinister player in, in all of this stuff. You know, one couple in recent news, news uh, uh, allegedly murdered their children based on an end-time scenario that they had been involved in. Now, that's extreme, but it's the logical outflow of looking at the cultural and political landscape and pointing out enemies that we're supposed to resist and name-calling and hating people because they're not on the side of Christianity. All of this stuff, guys, all of this stuff is an inappropriate expenditure of our spiritual energy. And when we see the extreme examples like the one I mentioned, we recognize there's fruit there. And one of the things that Jesus told us is that we're going to know his truth by the fruit that it's bearing. And let's look at the fruit that's born by this excessive obsession with trying to figure out a date or, or how the end time scenario goes down. The fruit is oftentimes fear, anxiety, depression, anger, hatred expressed towards people. What fruit is that? I mean, is this what Jesus meant when he said, be ready? I said it a lot. I know I have. I, I'll say it again. They'll probably carve it on my gravestone. But if Jesus comes back today or 10,000 years from now, our job description never changes. What if we did find some evidence that Jesus is going to come back or the end is going to happen in two years? So what? 
I mean, not so what in the larger sense. I'm happy for, for the conclusion to come and eternity to begin or whatever. But I'm just saying in terms of what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, that should be unchanged. We continue on doing what the master told us to do. And what's that? It means loving people. And it means doing good to those who hate us, to humanize the outsider, to support and lift up the weak, to bring the outcast close to God, to announce God's reconciling grace to the world around us. That's what we were told to do when he left. That never changes in our lifetime. That never changes. If Jesus is going to show up tomorrow and the world comes to its conclusion He never said, make sure you buy a bunker and a good one and stockpile some food or do whatever. He never said any of that stuff. No, he gave us one instruction, right? Go and share this good news. Go out into the world and demonstrate this glorious love that God has for the human race. That doesn't ever change in our time on earth. And I think it's interesting that nobody ever spends a lot of time trying to predict when they're going to die. Like, right? Like, nobody says, like, go to the doctor and say, I need more blood tests done because I need to see if I can pinpoint exactly when I'm going to die. Because I would really like to, you know, know and have that all prepared. And <laughs> but that is much, that's as much of an end time <laughs> event as the returning of Jesus. In fact, to date, it is the only end time that any believer on this planet has ever faced. The conclusion of our life here. But I have never met anyone who spends all their time and energy trying to figure out when their last breath is going to be. Well, it's morbid, Rob. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But it's fascinating how few people I meet ever actually even factor in the, the limitations, the limited time that we have to live. I've met lots of people who are busy trying to figure out when the end of the world is going to be. But very few people have I ever met who take Moses' advice, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. There's an ancient Celtic prayer of Eata that sums it up so well. The best preparation for the night is to work diligently while the day lasts. Call out in me a willingness to love and serve. And that's basically a rewording of what Jesus says here. Stay dressed for work. Keep your light shining. Do what you were called to do. And he'll take care of all those other things. And the reward that he describes, like we attend to this. And, and how, however this pans out, whether we conclude our lives here, whether Jesus returns, when we get to that state and we've been faithful on these things, the reward, the parable pictures, the head of the estate returning and so happy that his servants faithfully attended to his purposes that when he gets there, he reverses their roles. I don't know if you saw that in there. He, he has them sit and he serves them. That's, that's what happens in the parable. And so in the first application of this parable, Jesus coming to God's people of Israel and them not recognizing, except the few did recognize him, received him. Well, in John's gospel, this literally gets fulfilled. Jesus actually does uh, get a basin of water, washes his disciples' feet. He actually does this very thing. Now, in the second application of Jesus' return, I mean, it's hard to know what comparison is being made here, but it's a beautiful picture. It's certainly something that, you know... (laughs) <laughs> that I would like to, to experience. It, it evokes a positive feeling, giving, given reward and rest. 
after completing a job, hearing those words, well done. That's not in this passage, but it's something else he said. Well done, my faithful servant. That's why we store up treasure in heaven, eternal heaven, not hoarding temporal stuff. And that's why we live prepared for whatever end may come. Because we have this hope in a good future, in a good ending, no matter what. All right, Jesus goes on, verse 41. Peter asked, uh, Lord, is this illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that servant has done a good job, there'll be a reward. I'll tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return return unannounced, unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. Woo. Okay, so Peter, uh, Peter, I love Peter. He's awesome in this. And he wants to understand who Jesus' target audience is uh, for all of this. So he's asking, Lord, is this for your disciples? Is this for your disciples only? Or is this for all of Israel are you talking about? In other words, are there just going to be a few followers who are rewarded or will the rest of Israel finally come around and recognize that you are the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. But instead, he tells another parable to negate the potential of a sense of elevated status that Peter may be feeling for being one who is on the inside of God's plan. And that's what's at the heart of what Peter's saying here. This harkens back to the beginning, beginning of the chapter. Remember, the crowds were pressing in. They just were, had become so popular. Their ministry was so popular. And Jesus, instead of reveling in, in that, warned about the dangers of hypocrisy that come with public approval. And so this parable seems to be a warning to, to Peter, just because you're one who has received me as Lord, don't imagine that you're somehow better or over someone else because of that. Don't assume an elevated status just because you've seen this, you've received this. And I think this is reminding us that we live prepared when we continue in humble service to others. Because that, of course, is our job description. And the illustration that he gives is something we see play out in workplaces all the time. Somebody on the job receives a promotion, deserved or undeserved, and all of a sudden it goes to their head. And they start, you know, throwing their weight around and giving orders and just being a jerk to everybody, exercising power over people while excusing their own negligence is, is the idea. And that's the point of this story. In context of Peter's question, Jesus is saying, just because you've recognized that I'm the Messiah, don't think it gives you a place of superiority or lordship over the rest of Israel, over your brothers and sisters, over the rest of the world. In our context, as the church, it would be just because we believed on Jesus for our salvation, we believe he's going to return, don't assume some sense of superiority over the rest of the people of this world. Don't Assume that grace is a license for self-indulgent, indulgence, self-centric indulgence. That's what he's describing there. It's a warning about the danger of self-elevation, which in this story works out as taking power over people and selfish excess by the one servant who was put in charge. 
The issue in this section of being prepared for Christ's appearance centers on how we serve others. Uh, you know, do we build others up or do we tear people down? What is, what is it that we're about? What is it we do, especially with our fellow believers? How do we use our voice? What do we do with the amazing miracle of language that God's given us to use? Do we use that to build others up? to encourage, to promote God's grace in this world, or do we tear down as much as we can and spit venom everywhere? Everything centers on that in this parable. And this is highly applicable to leaders in the church community, where, as Jesus warned about the religious leaders of his day, the temptation is to want to assert power over people that we're actually called to serve. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Leadership within the church is not some sort of license to take control or or control others, exercise power over people. That was never God's intent or design. We're called to serve. But it's applicable to all of us. If we're followers of Christ, then we're going to follow his example that he lived for us. The church is meant to be a place where the culture that we develop is one of good, where we care for one another. So often we get caught up in the worldly practices of bashing people and tearing other people down, name-calling and all of that stuff. i got to say, it's a tragic thing. I, I, I'm, I watch preachers, my fellow pastors, and they'll spend their time in their meetings and their teachings. One teaching was supposed to be about Romans. It wasn't about Romans at all. It was spent the entire time bashing a political party. I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, but we've done this. We've, we've taken up this, this worldly practice. We've abandoned our first love. We've abandoned it as the church in America in so many ways, in what it is that we were called to do. Are we ready? Are we waiting? I'm not convinced we are. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that as individuals we can't move forward and, and do what it is that God calls us to do. The last part of that section, verse 46, it's, it's particularly harsh, right? I mean, he talks about cutting the unfaithful servant up and banishing him, which is so weird. Like, <laughs> what good is banishing a dismembered person? What, you know, <laughs> not only that, yeah, <laughs> when you die, I'm going to kill you. It's, 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 it's so, okay, so you got to drill into this. In the Greek, the, the word there does mean, you know, Bisection, but it was also used as a euphemism for a beating or a flogging or a scourging. So it's the idea of being beaten and thrown outside of the estate property. That does not lessen the harshness of it. It's still from modern ears. That's like, Gah. for ancient ears, the original hearers, less so. Very normal part of their experiences in the world that they lived in at that time. And again, it's a parable. So we don't want to go around trying to make one-to-one applications of how this is going to look. Uh, the point is, the final state is one of separation from the Lord's estate. That's the idea. Separation from what it is that, that God is doing. And this has been perplexing. I mean, there's no doubt that this is perplexing, especially, you know, since the Reformation, because, uh, you know, if this is talking about a believer... Who, who behaved badly and then was cast out, it calls into question a believer's security in their salvation, and it invites the idea that a person's works 
become the basis for salvation because they were doing something wrong and therefore they're, they're banished. Some suggest that it simply means a loss of reward in, in an eternal state for the believer. Uh, it certainly doesn't fit with the picture presented as being cast out. Again, this may be a dual or a, a you know a, a dual interpretation or dual uh, fulfillment of it. An initial application certainly could be applicable to Israel at that time. In in that they rejected the the Messiah, they abused their position, and they faced the consequences uh, of that. But then there's a later application. I, you know, and and we've got to we've got to think about this. I believe it goes back to. Peter's initial question, is this for us or for everyone? The underlying danger of feeling superior in this. And I believe Jesus is saying that that this sense of superiority over others that works itself out in abusing people and living self-indulgently actually reveals a heart that is still part of this broken world's system. So that when that system is gone and banished, that heart is gone as well. Um, You know, Again, I think the primary application goes to Israel, and, and we saw that all get played out in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. But listen, this is something that all of us have to ponder and consider. The warning is there. I'm not going to stand up here and say that I got it all figured out and exactly how we're supposed to apply this. This is a warning. <laughs> I think that's good enough. <laughs> this is a warning that we want to look at and ponder and consider. How seriously do I take any of this stuff? Uh, how easy is it for me to go ahead and abuse someone else or just live to serve my own purposes? Maybe that's a reason to examine my relationship with God. Maybe that's a reason to step back and say, wait a minute, did I join a religion? Or have I actually committed my heart to this Savior? Not a question I can answer for anyone. Let's quickly finish up here. uh, Verse 47. And he said, a servant who knows what the master wants, but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who doesn't know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. And when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Uh, again, this is a really interesting passage. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody sits around thinking, "Man, I cannot wait to teach on this stuff." This is not just you know. This is stuff you sit around on Saturday night, going, "Man, can I get a job as a plumber somewhere?" I don't know anything about plumbing, but either way, it's an interesting passage. Jesus creates this distinction between deliberate and unwitting non, or you know, deliberate and and also unwitting non-compliance, and he indicates levels of retribution based on that distinction that he makes there. But again, this just raises so many questions. Uh, is this talking about final destinations? Is this, you know, like, is this affirming purgatory in some way or a degree of status within God's kingdom? What is being talked about here? This is where I think it's important, again, to distinguish, as I have done several times in this teaching, this is a parable. So we're not looking for one-to-one comparisons on this or, or uh, looking for fulfillments in, in literal sense. And this is an illustration using familiar images to the people, at least of that day, and, and, and it's not a literal description of a thing. And so his point isn't the details of the punishment, in my mind. It's the responsibility that comes with being part of the Jesus way of life. And so I think what we're learning here is that we live prepared when we take our responsibility as Christians seriously. 
And this, I believe, takes us back to last week's lesson about generosity and our, and our heart's condition and, uh, you know, how it is that we're setting up our values. Using language like given much and entrusted with much, it carries the idea of having an abundance of something and a willingness to share that abundance with others. I really believe that's the heart of what's being communicated here. In the first context, I think Jesus is warning Israel of her failure to take the promise that was made to Abraham, that you're going to be a light to the nations, that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. They didn't take that seriously. And instead of doing that, they cloistered from the world. And they withdrew and they allowed their obsession with separation and purity to turn into xenophobia and hateful attitudes towards the Gentiles. And Israel had a greater knowledge than anyone had had at that time. And they faced the greater consequences for that knowledge. They saw that play out in 70 AD when when Jerusalem was restored, was destroyed and never restored fully to where they were. The temple was razed to the ground and never built back up. And these things were were the things that Jesus was pointing to initially, but that's the primary warning, but it has a second application to us. We've been given much grace. And God expects us to give from that grace to others. I think Robert even mentioned that in his prayer this morning. That's that's the whole idea. We're we're, we're we've been given all of this for the purpose of extending it to the world around us. We've been given this hope of salvation. The expectation is we share that hope with the world around us. Not, as Jesus said, condemning the world, but that through Jesus the world might be saved. So so does this mean that the church, Rob, could be in danger of being cast off? No, no, not as a whole, not at all. But you know what's interesting is that in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to specific churches, seven different churches at the outset of that book, and he warns in some context of, of a lamp being removed. You know, get this together. Pay attention to what you're doing. Otherwise, I'm going to come and remove your lamp from its place. The idea of that community is not going to be able to be existing. I believe that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says many have become sick and have died because they haven't observed the Lord's body. I believe he's not talking about individuals. I think he's talking about communities that are no longer able to thrive. They've gotten sick. They're not behaving or functioning the way they were supposed to be. I talk about my time in the crazy church, and that was a place that abused people and withdrew from the world and thoroughly failed to live up to the gospel that was entrusted to them. And that church is gone now. I mean, there's not a trace of it left anywhere. You talk about a lamp being removed. It's certainly something that I saw play out in reality. I don't know. I mean, is that the right application of these verses? I'm not sure. It is not an easy passage. That's why I think Jesus doesn't answer Peter's question directly. Instead, he tells a story that makes Peter think and makes us think. It's intended for us to meditate on this and see how the Holy Spirit will lead us. We know this for sure. This is a warning. And Jesus doesn't make warnings lightly or for no reason. What are the ramifications? What is the extent of that warning? Man, I'm not exactly sure based on what he's saying here, but if we're basing it and, you know, up and, and bracing it against the rest of the New Testament, 
I'm going to say that this isn't so much trying to tell us that we've got to try to earn our salvation or do something like that, uh, do something right in order to finally be okay with God. But it's a, it's, a, it's a warning to us that we've been entrusted with something great here. This is, guys, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is bigger than anything else going on in this world. This is bigger than any value set we may have based on our political affiliations or anything like that. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unrestrained grace of God that he wants to pour out on the world, on the people that he made that he loves. This is a calling that we have in our lives. That it's not something that we want to just set off to the side as a periphery, as you know, some some ancillary thing that we attend to once a week because you know it makes me look good. This is the real deal. This is a calling on our lives that 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 means something, and it carries the weight of that meaning in our lives. Whatever way we read this, the point is still the same. We've been given much. Let's not squander it. Let's take our lives as Christians seriously. Let's live a life prepared for what's next. Whether it's the end of our lives or the coming of Jesus Christ, let's be ready by attending to our calling to love God and to serve our fellow human being in all humility. That's the calling we've got. That's the calling that never changes. Let's embrace that and take that into the world. The best preparation for the night is to work diligently while the day lasts. Right on? All right, very cool. Father, if you guys will stand with me. Father, we just ask you to take your word and, and work it into our hearts. Lord, as we read these things today and... And I know that it's challenging for all of us. They're they're serious words, Lord. And so we've presented ourselves before your word and we ask you by your spirit to do that shaping. Rework our hearts, Lord. Reshape our hearts. Attend to our values so that we rightly represent you in this world. Lord, you know how easy it is for us as human beings to chase off on different trails that seem exciting or sensational when so often your calling on our lives feels so mundane get up in the morning and be a good human being and uh, demonstrate God's love to the world around us it's not an easy thing to do and it's so easy to get excited about something else that seems a little more I don't know sensational Deliver us from that, Father. Like, do that, Lord. Deliver us from... Deliver us from that pattern we have as fallen human beings. Deliver us from the culture around us that continually chases one high after the next. Help us to find our completeness and wholeness and satisfaction in living a simple life for you. Do that in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen, Lord, we call you king. You alone, you alone, O Lord, are king. 
Help us to keep that ever in view. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, thank you guys for coming out today. And uh, we'll speak this blessing on each other. And we can go and be a light in the world that we've been called to. Right on? All right. May Christ be light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you. On your left and on your right both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.